This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. One of the most important ballot initiatives that has ever passed in Colorado is the focus of our show this week. The first two installments of this series already aired, and you can find them wherever you get your podcasts. Today, the conclusion of The Taxman. Here again, CPR's Rachel Estabrook. Previously on The Taxman. Douglas Bruce was a landlord when he led a taxpayer revolution in Colorado in 1992. He wrote an amendment voted into the state constitution to limit government growth and give more money back to the people. I am a crazy man. (laughs) I'm crazy about my country. I'm crazy enough to believe all those things we were told in school about the consent of the governed, we the people. The measure is called TABOR. It took away politicians' power to raise taxes on their own and put strict limits on what they could spend. It put Colorado at the front of the anti-tax movement in America and made Bruce a hero. But none of that lasted. The government found itself in a crisis. Politicians convinced voters to weaken TABOR. And as for Bruce? He is instrumental, not alone, but instrumental in in passing one of the most consequential amendments in Colorado history. And he ends up descending into a, a, a series of disgraces. Colorado Public Radio. This is The Taxman. I'm Rachel Estabrook. In this last episode, how Coloradans learned to live with Tabor and how things got even worse for its author, Douglas Bruce. Bruce's transformation from populist revolutionary to pariah, as he said it, it didn't happen overnight, but it crystallized after he spent a year inside the government he wanted to transform. His colleagues censured him, and he lost his seat in a primary. I was radioactive in certain circles. You know, people say, oh, I hate Doug Bruce. I love Tabor, but I hate Doug Bruce. Because of a constant drumbeat for decades, literally decades, saying that I'm this evil person. He had built up a reputation as the most famous government antagonist in the state. And ever since Tabor passed in the 90s, Bruce predicted that at some point he'd end up in jail. In his mind, if you fight the government, then eventually the government finds a way to stop you. It turns out he was right. He did go to jail and then state prison. But the public officials who put him there say it has nothing to do with who he is. So this is what happened. It started decades ago with a little book. See, ever since he went to law school, Bruce has carried around an edition of the U.S. Constitution in his shirt pocket, the one he quizzed me with. What are the first five words of the Bill of Rights? Congress shall make no law. It's the basis for his life's work to restrict government. So about 15 years ago, Bruce set up a charity to hand out pocket-sized editions of the U.S. Constitution to every high school senior in Colorado. They were about to become voters. I thought that they should know about their constitutional rights. 
And when he ran for county office in the early 2000s, Bruce made a pledge to donate his salary to this charity to pay for the constitutions. He followed through, gave away the money. The problem was, Bruce didn't declare his salary on his tax return. I was the uh, attorney general when Doug got in dispute with the Colorado Department of Revenue. John Southers is a Republican. Doug had this unique interpretation of the law uh, where he thought that he didn't have to take his salary and he could just directly donate it to a charity, which happened to be one that he set up. It was a big mistake. The state said, hey, you owe us back taxes on that salary. And they thought there might be more going on. So they did an audit. Well, guess what? Doug had other revenue that he wasn't uh, reporting. And uh, so the Department of Revenue said, OK, you owe us this amount. It wasn't just the county salary. Bruce had made money from a thriving real estate business. And so basically, the Department of Revenue alleged that Bruce had used his charity to hide millions of dollars in income and avoid paying taxes. And since part of that income was coming from the government, it was fairly obvious when he didn't report it to the government. In 2011, the state charged the guy who might be the most famous tax cutter in Colorado history with tax evasion. I ridiculed the government's theory, calling it felony philanthropy. It was all going out to the charity for the charity's purpose, which was telling people about their constitutional rights. I've still got 40,000 copies of pocket constitutions in my garage that uh, I've been interrupted in distributing. One Friday afternoon, Bruce went to the post office in his hometown, Colorado Springs. And as he was leaving, officers came up and arrested him. Bruce talked with a radio reporter in the courthouse on the day of his arraignment. You said they're targeting you. Do you think they're targeting you as an individual? Yeah, of course. As, but, but also, do you think they're targeting people like you with your activism? There is nobody like me. What kind of a question is that? Okay. So they're going after me, just as they have in all these other cases that they're piling on, in the hopes that I'm just going to sort of crack or implode or something. Uh, because I'm juggling all these times to go to all these court cases, and therefore I won't be able to do anything to enforce the Tabor Amendment or people's constitutional rights. But I did it today in my lunch hour anyway. Seriously, that day, in the middle of the arraignment, he filed a protest to a marijuana tax measure. His commitment to the cause breaks for no one. But he said in the courthouse that day, that's the problem. They would love nothing better than to strip Mr. Petition of his right to petition the government and put me into state prisons. Bruce actually had a chance to stay out of custody, according to Southers. He says normally in these types of cases, the accused would settle with the Department of Revenue, pay a fine, and avoid a conviction. But that's not really Bruce's style. He'd gotten in trouble lots of times since the early 90s for real estate deals, hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines for dilapidated properties in Denver and in other cities. He usually fought them. It's shocking. I mean, most people in his position would say, I should hire a lawyer. I should cut a deal. He took completely the opposite approach. Alan Prendergast is a longtime journalist in Denver who wrote about Bruce's legal troubles. He handled a lot of the cases himself. He would hold press conferences and let people know how the city of Denver was behaving badly. He would berate these various minor officials. 
he, he was really trying to point out the whole system was flawed and he was the guy to tell you exactly what was wrong with it. Most of the time, it worked to get the fines dismissed. But he also built up a lot of ill will, telling politicians he knew the law better than they did. He just couldn't help himself. Douglas Bruce always wanted to make a point. So he fought the tax evasion charge. And this time, it backfired. The jury convicted Bruce. Eventually, he ended up in the Delta Correctional Center in western Colorado, state prison. Bruce sees this conviction and all the real estate fines over the years as a direct result of his fight for Tabor, a consequence, what happens when you try to take on the government. You know, if you disagree with the government, we're going to send you to prison. That's the message. But it was a jury that made this decision. And John Southers says he and the state handled Bruce's case just like any other, that he's got nothing against the man or the law that he wrote. But the sentencing sidelined Bruce from what was an ongoing battle over Tabor. While the future of the law was being debated, Bruce was in jail, then prison, holding a steel rake, pushing gravel around. The first place he was locked up, he didn't eat much. I would eat hard-boiled eggs because they had a shell. And then I had milk that had half-pint cartons of milk. Then occasionally they would have unopened packages of cookies. Bruce played chess to pass the time. When he could have books, he'd read Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., Henry David Thoreau. Bruce felt like he was part of their club of political prisoners. Bruce told us at first that he didn't want to talk about this time in his life. But then he brought it up repeatedly. And you'll want to hear what happened after he got out of prison. That's coming up. But first, being in custody kept him out of the public eye for a while. Meanwhile, the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, he wrote, had become ever-present for politicians in Colorado. It touched every little decision that they had to make. And a lot of politicians had started thinking that they had to get creative to get around this law if they had any chance of saving Colorado's roads and schools. We'll be back after a break. You're hearing The Taxman on Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is The Taxman from Colorado Public Radio. I'm Rachel Estbrook. In this third episode, the final episode, why so many people in Colorado loathe Tabor today, and why others who love the law say politicians have destroyed Douglas Bruce's creation. Ever since Tabor passed, every government in the state has had a choice to follow it or to try to get around it. At the local level, they've mostly agreed to follow Tabor and let voters decide how much government spends. But at the state level, especially in the past 15 years, they've decided they'll find workarounds. Like, here's an example. Even after the big reform we talked about in the last episode, a lot of people in state government thought there still wasn't nearly enough money to go around because they had a big problem on their hands. The state's roads and bridges were in crisis. The gas tax had funded road repairs in the past, but it hadn't gone up since before Tabor. The problem is massive. It's systemic. It's been building over time. Gas tax was last set more than 17 years ago at 22 cents a gallon. 
Lawmakers could have asked voters to raise taxes, but they thought it would never pass. It was the depths of the last recession at this point, 2008. And plus, Douglas Bruce had thought of this when he wrote Tabor. He'd specified how politicians have to ask for money. Like, on your ballot, it starts with, shall taxes be increased by millions or billions of dollars? Bruce wanted people to vote no. And they have. Statewide, voters have only agreed to two tax increases since Tabor passed, for cigarettes and marijuana. Sin taxes. That's it. So state lawmakers thought, what can we do to get more money for this road problem? We can't raise taxes. So they decided to raise fees instead on car registrations. I asked a Democrat who was then serving her first term in Colorado's House why that felt like the right solution. Lois Court is from Denver, and she co-sponsored the bill. It was easier to get the fees increased than to go to the ballot and ask for it. That's it. It was easier. Where in Tabor does it let you do fees, raise fees without asking voters? Well, it, it's, it's, the, it's the opposite. It doesn't not let us. If this seems like a technicality, it is. Tabor's biggest defenders were outraged. With Douglas Bruce in jail, a group called the Tabor Foundation sued. They said this is just a tax by another name. But the courts let the new car fees stand. And this workaround has caught on. Politicians have passed fees on everything from parks to business licenses to hospital stays. And those fees come out of Coloradans' wallets. Ask anybody at the DMV. We ran into Laquita Leverett one Friday this fall in Denver when she went to register her new Ford Focus. They cost about $500. Expensive. <laughs> Very expensive. I would be happy with half, if not a fourth of the cost that we just paid. About $40 of that is because of these vehicle fees that helped politicians get around Tabor. And it's not the only way they've found. A lot of state agencies now call themselves enterprises, so they don't have to abide by Tabor's spending limits. It all drives people like Kevin Lundberg crazy. Uh, Tabor has been under threat ever since it was adopted by the people. He's a state senator from northern Colorado, and he's probably Tabor's strongest defender at the Capitol. I've been down here for 15 years, and I have watched the process again and again and again, where the legislature and other political forces have found ways to get around Tabor. But those car fees have raised more than $200 million a year to repair bridges and roads that were in really bad shape. And politicians keep doing these workarounds because over the years, it hasn't gotten any easier to go to voters. Just a few months ago, Lois Court, who's now a state senator, implored her colleagues to ask voters to raise taxes. i got to say I'm beyond frustrated. Way beyond frustrated. People's taxes are what we pay to get what we need. And this state needs this bill. Why are we afraid to ask the people of Colorado to make a decision? Put it out there for the people to vote on because that's exactly what Tabor allows for and that's exactly what this bill does. But they didn't put it on the ballot. One senator who voted no said he didn't want voters to have to defend themselves from a tax increase. All this has some people from both parties really worried. 
Reeves Brown is a Republican. He's been in state and local politics for decades. And he's pretty freaked out about the future. 30 years ago, the most staunch conservative in the, in the, in the state would never have advocated, well, here's, a, here's an idea. Why don't we just quit funding higher ed? Why don't we just stop that? Nobody would have suggested that. And yet that's exactly the trajectory that we're on. It could happen in just a couple years. Colorado could become the first state to stop putting money into colleges and universities. As much as state government has struggled with Tabor, local governments in Colorado have mostly learned to live with it. It's made some more efficient, and when they need more money, they ask for it. Across Colorado, local politicians have asked voters thousands of times to raise their own taxes or let the government spend a little more. Voters in the city of Colorado Springs' April election will decide how much of a refund they want from the city's budget surplus. Commissioners decided to put the tax revenue question on the November ballot. Voters will be asked to allocate $6 million for widening I-25 between Monument and Castle. You decide if the city should keep more than $68 million. The money is supposed to be refunded to taxpayers, but the city wants to keep it to help improve city finances. Some local governments were able to kick free from Tabor's tight limits in perpetuity. That phenomenon got a nickname, by the way. It's called debrucing, as in removing Douglas Bruce from the equation. In these thousands of elections, voters have said yes the vast majority of the time. Even Douglas Bruce voted for a tax increase once, for a local library. He did tell us that after the election, he changed his mind. But still, Coloradans have shown that for the most part, they want the things their local government provides. But it doesn't always work. School districts are increasingly divided into those that pass property tax increases on the ballot and those that don't. One rural district says it's losing teachers to Walmart, where they'll make more money. Not far away in Greeley, Colorado, there's one of the lowest funded school districts in the state. It's called Greeley-Evans. Another district in the same county has twice as much money per student. Superintendent Deirdre Pilch met me at Jackson Elementary School. It was built in the 50s, and when it rains, the principal calls it Jackson Falls because of all the water that seeps in from holes in the roof. We walked into the gym. First graders were running around, throwing balls at the walls and off the wooden floors, and that actually wouldn't be possible in Pilch's other schools. Several of our elementary schools have carpeted gym floors. I had never even seen that. There was a time, I guess, in the 80s when, late 70s, early 80s, when that was an inexpensive way to complete a gym, to put carpeting on the floor. Pilch says this district has more than $300 million in deferred maintenance. Roofs, buses, HVACs, boilers. She says they all need a makeover. They need security cameras in the high schools, and kids have to get their hands on more up-to-date technology. Then there's the staff. We have currently 12 open bus driver positions, and we cut 16 from last year. So, and we're still down 12 positions. And a, a lot of that is pay. I mean, we He'll know just cut administrators, too. It's still not enough. But as problems have mounted at these schools, voters have repeatedly said no to raising taxes. But Pilch has no choice but to keep asking. My conversation with her was three months ago, and as promised... She went to voters again this fall. 
The ballot asked, shall taxes be increased by $14 million a year? Remember, that's Bruce's design to give the voter a sticker shock. But this year, for the first time in the district's history, voters said yes. Pilch spoke through tears of joy at the election night party. We believe that we can have more kids ready for the workforce, more kids ready for college, and more kids ready for career. That's what this is about, folks. This is that first step. This is how Tabor is supposed to work. And yet, for Pilch, it really is just a first step. Remember, the district has $300 million in maintenance needs. This $14 million isn't going to fix that. They're still way short of Colorado's average in spending for each student. And that's already lower than most other states. Pilch says they'll have to go back to voters again before long. And yet, for all the hand-wringing about Tabor, the most dire predictions about what would happen if it passed 25 years ago haven't come true. Back in 1992, Tabor's opponents said there'd be chaos. Governments would be so squeezed that Denver wouldn't be able to pay cops. There were worries about how they'd keep the Pope safe on his upcoming visit to the city. Colorado, they said, would be closed for business. But that hasn't happened at all. Looking out at Denver today, the skyline is filled with tower cranes, dozens of them. Colorado has one of the lowest unemployment rates in the country. 7,000 people a month move here. It's consistently near the top of those lists, like best places to start a business. CPR's Ben Marcus reports on this a lot. And Ben, we've been talking for three episodes now about Tabor as a revolution. As we look at it today, is that true? No. I think 25 years ago, Tabor was certainly a revolution. But part of this story is that if you give politicians 25 years to get around something, then they will. They will find lots of creative ways. And even people who support Tabor admit that today it is a ghost of itself. Douglas Bruce kind of joked with us about this. What do you think the biggest impact of Tabor has been? It temporarily scared the... uh pants off of uh, crooked politicians. Temporarily. But we know that Tabor is still relevant. The state has a top 10 economy, and it's in the middle or bottom of the pack for money that goes to schools. Despite the fees we talked about, Colorado has some of the worst roads in the country. And the most important provision of Tabor is still there, that voters get the final say on all tax increases at the local and the statewide level. And it's not going anywhere. And that's a fundamental shift in what it means to be a democracy. In every other state, they elect representatives who can raise taxes and set budgets, with some restrictions, of course. But in Colorado, we've taken that power away from politicians. It puts a lot of responsibility on voters to know what's going on, even in off-year elections, to understand state budgets in a way that voters in a lot of states aren't asked to do. And there's been a little bit of a backlash to this idea that 25 years ago, at a moment in time, this got put into the state constitution, and some people still aren't happy with it. 25 years ago, the state was willing to make monumental changes through the ballot. 
And ever since then, we've made it harder to do that. We've passed the single subject rule, which makes it harder to put a bunch of stuff into one vote. Uh, We now have Amendment 71, which increases the threshold for getting a constitutional amendment into the Constitution. You have to have 55 percent of the popular vote. Uh, Tabor would not have passed in that environment. And so Coloradans have clearly decided that easy changes to the Constitution, which was a progressive thing that was passed into law more than 100 years ago, they finally decided that maybe that's not the best way to do business. But by doing that, by making it harder, they've actually crystallized some of these things that we have added into the Constitution. They're probably not going to go anywhere. But it makes it a lot harder for one person with a passion to get enough votes in any given moment to get it in there in the Constitution. So no more Douglas Bruce's? There will never be another Doug Bruce. After a break, what Douglas Bruce faced when he got out of prison. This is the tax man from Colorado Public Radio. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Douglas Bruce is a legend in Colorado for pushing one of the most consequential and controversial laws voters here have ever passed. It's the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, Tabor. And this week, we've been telling the story of Bruce and the strict taxing and spending limits he wrote. Producer Rachel Estabrook takes us through the final part of that story now. In July 2016, Douglas Bruce went to the parole board to ask to be let out of prison. My name is Alfredo Peña, member of the Colorado State Board of Parole, conducting video interviews of offenders who are appearing. He asks what Bruce plans to do if he gets parole. Bruce says he'll go back to his home of 30 years. He'll pick his real estate business back up. And then he says, I accept responsibility for all my actions. I deeply regret them. It will never happen again. You said, I accept responsibility for all my actions. I deeply regret them. It will never happen again. Those are true statements. That doesn't mean that I did anything wrong. Doesn't so mean what do you regret? I, I regret the fact that they sent me to prison. Any intelligent person would regret that. So I said something in a way that sounds like contrition, but it isn't contrition. Obviously, I regret they're stealing six months out of my life to put me in a hole somewhere. It it was disgusting. It wasn't depressing because I rose above it mentally, okay? Because I knew I did nothing wrong and I was going to have to spend my life when I got back out climbing out of this hole that these evil, corrupt people had put me in. Mr. Bruce, uh, I read your statement. I've heard your statements. I've reviewed your file. You're doing well. I feel very good about the fact that we will never see you again. That concludes this hearing. Good luck to you, sir. The parole board was respectful, but Bruce sounded frustrated to be in that position, asking for freedom. It, it strikes me that this is obviously the biggest legal battle that you've been through here. Of but there are there have been many. Do you ever get tired of it? Like, do you? Of course, I get tired you, of it. Why? I, I would like. What's What's here in Colorado that keeps you here fighting? I'm this not going to run away. I'm not going to let them win. Okay. 
I did nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. But does it get tiring to fight it? I am exasperated, but it actually is, uh, I'm not sure it's the right word, rejuvenating. It, it's, it's telling me I'm on the right side. It's telling me I'm getting to them. Just like every other setback, going to prison hasn't stopped Douglas Bruce. But the stage has changed. He doesn't show up at the state capitol much anymore. He mostly stays around Colorado Springs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the uh, regular meeting of Colorado Springs City Council for Tuesday, January 24th. Today, he's the agitated guy at the city council meeting, waiting for his turn to speak to rows of chairs that are mostly empty. My name is Douglas Bruce. I've lived here for over 30 years. And what this council did with one dissenting vote last April 20th was probably the most flagrant violation of law that I've seen in my 30 years here, and that's saying something. A flagrant violation of Tabor. He handed out copies of the law to every council member in size 32 font. Any time his home city talks about something related to Tabor these days, you can bet Bruce will be there. And this is Bruce in his element, prodding the people in power, reminding them what they're doing wrong, and defending Tabor with every last breath. That's not the only battle Bruce is fighting right now, though. He wants to get his tax evasion conviction vacated based on a number of things. He says his constitutional rights were violated, that he didn't get a fair jury or a speedy trial, that he couldn't subpoena witnesses, particularly some from the IRS who didn't find any problems with his charity, Bruce says. But it's too late, really, to save his reputation. That book's been written. No, getting the conviction vacated is about making a point. And it's about getting back something even more important than friends or money or popularity. I was deprived of my right to vote. So I had a perfect voting record since age 21 when I was, back at that time, first eligible to register to vote. Perfect voting record for 46 years. As a felon on parole, he can't vote now. The guy who wrote a new Bill of Rights in hopes of expanding people's individual freedom. The guy who tried to make it even easier for voters to make laws. And he doesn't get to participate. Thanks for listening to The Taxman from Colorado Public Radio. And that is the third and final episode of our podcast, The Taxman. From CPR's Rachel Estabrook, Ben Marcus, and Nathaniel Miner. Do you still have questions about Tabor? We'd like to try to answer them. Click connect at CPR.org. When we come back, what if Denver doesn't land Amazon's second headquarters? This is Colorado Matters.
It's kind of like a mating ritual. Cities across North America have been strutting their stuff, hoping to catch Amazon's eye. The retail giant is looking for a place to build its second headquarters. And this morning, we got a clearer picture of what Metro Denver's mating dance entailed. CPR's Rachel Estabrook joins me from downtown. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Ryan. You are at the Metro Denver Economic Development Corporation, which helped put this offer together. Yeah, and let me just remind folks, Colorado is competing with more than 30 different states, provinces, territories, and analysis by the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal have put Colorado with a pretty good shot. But with that many bids, it's hard to know, and they haven't gotten any information from Amazon about where they stand yet. Okay, so what did you learn about uh, the sites in Metro Denver that Colorado is pitching? Not much. So J.J. Ament is the uh, head of Metro Denver Economic Development here, and he dropped a hint that Denver and Aurora at least have bids in, but that doesn't really tell you very much. Um, so they submitted eight sites, but they wouldn't reveal any details about them. Um, they said that that could hurt any negotiations that Amazon tries to do if they actually choose Colorado. It could hurt the property owners who own those sites if they're trying to sell them in the future. So anyway, we don't, we still don't know where those sites are. Um, we also didn't learn anything specific about the incentives. Um, Mr. Ament actually said they can't commit specific incentives. Um, those are performance driven. So if a company comes in and starts generating economic activity, that's when the tax incentives kick in. You know, there's been a lot of talk about Metro Denver not having offered as plush a package in terms of incentives as other communities. But uh, what did they offer? What did they emphasize? Yeah, so Newark offered $7 billion, and Colorado's not coming anywhere close to that. But, you know, they talked about public transit and the airport and the, the accessibility of the Metro Denver area. They talked about the potential workforce. And this is interesting because they said that in Metro Denver's proposal, they really emphasized how much tech talent there is here, people that Amazon could hire. But the Wall Street Journal ranked Denver pretty low for that compared with the other cities at the top of the running. And I asked J.J. Ament about that. I disagree. Colorado's among the top 10 states for tech talent. So it, it depends on who's making that definition and where they're drawing that line. Um, and we produce a ton of technical and engineering students out of Colorado colleges every year, and it's increasing. He also said that a lot of the new jobs Amazon would hire for wouldn't actually be in tech. Remember, this is a headquarters, so you've got finance folks and HR. Uh, what do business leaders think they're getting out of this competition, you know, whether or not they land the headquarters? Right. So even if Colorado doesn't get it, they feel like they're getting something out of it because they see this essentially as a big marketing opportunity. And that even could be with Amazon. So even if they don't get the headquarters, they see potential to get another distribution facility or some other building, like a regional headquarters, something that Amazon would build in the future. So this is a chance to lay out what Metro Denver and Colorado have to offer for any future decision from Amazon, but also from any other company. I mean, JJ Ament talked about how this is a global marketing opportunity. We've done interviews as far away as Singapore. So whether or not Amazon chooses us, we've had an opportunity to tell our story in a truly global way to a whole bunch of business and industry leaders that aren't directly related to this particular proposal. Well, when's the big word coming, Rachel? I think after the new year. They're expecting 2018. Okay. Thanks for being with us. 
Of course. CPR's Rachel Estabrook. She joined us from the Metro Denver Economic Development Corporation, where we got a fuller picture today of Metro Denver's bid for a second Amazon headquarters. Capturing the perfect photo of Rocky Mountain National Park can be tough, but Eric Stensland is a master. He goes out late at night or very early in the morning to shoot Rocky's flowers, waterfalls, and fleeting moments, and he does this year-round. Stenland's about to release a new book of photos and reflections, and we're going to listen back to his conversation earlier this year with Andrea Dukakis. We'll get some tips from you in a bit, but in addition to your galleries in Colorado and New Mexico, you post images almost every day, sometimes more than once a day on Twitter. They're gorgeous landscapes of mountains, forests, and lakes. And We have a colleague here who calls them her moments of zen in her mm-hmm. Twitter feed. Is there a spiritual aspect for you in taking these pictures? Absolutely, yeah. I feel like here in our modern world, we've become so busy and occupied with the goings-on, the things we need to do, that we really lose track of what's happening deep inside of us. And when I moved to the mountains, I recognized that in that stillness, I began to connect with something much deeper. I began to realize that there was so much more, even inside of me, inside of all of us, that we almost never touch. And so my photography, I guess, is an attempt to try and mm, help people sense that, help people get in touch with that, and uh, uh, hopefully draw them into the wilderness and into the stillness. Do you always go alone to take these photographs? Does it help with that being able to, you know, capture it and and be able to get those emotions out? Yeah, I think uh, that is really the main reason I took up photography was for that uh, that quiet time alone, the time to think and time to meditate and pray. And uh, if you're busy, if you're there with someone else, your your focus is always outward, and you never can really plunge beneath the surface and uh, recognize what's happening deep inside. And so, both for my own well being. As well as for my creativity with the photography, I find that being alone is is really an essential component of that. And as part of that, you sometimes post notes on the photos, with the photos on Twitter, like, the most stunning beauty often arrives after we've lost hope. And, quote, mountains are things of wonder, breaking the horizon and encouraging us to see possibilities we never thought could exist. And you're working on a book, too, with personal reflections about the park. You've brought a reading for us from the book called Enter the Pain. Yes, such an encouraging title, right? (laughs) I'm working on this book. It's been in the making for quite a while. But I find that while I'm out there hiking uh, through the wilderness, oftentimes in the middle of the night, uh, my mind is turning and thinking on various things that we don't normally address in our lives. And so... I I then stop on the side of the trail and jot down a few notes, and when I get home, I type them up, and pretty soon I had such a collection, I thought, boy, I should put these into a book. Mm. But let me read you this one section called Enter the Pain, just to give you kind of a taste of it, and a sense of what it's like for me out in the wilderness. Long, quiet trails can be places of incredible peace, but just as often they can be places of intense pain. Most of us have hidden wounds that we don't really think about during our daily lives. Our constant activity keeps them from reaching the surface. Perhaps that is one of the reasons we remain so busy, to avoid these places of pain inside us. 
A long, quiet trail can unmask these wounds like nothing else. Much like a blister in the boot, these sources of internal pain rise to the surface until they begin to scream in our ears, and ignoring them is no longer an option. While our tendency is to avoid the intense discomfort, this pain is actually a call to healing. Our broken relationships, our fears, our hidden wounds need not fester. The pain calls us to pay attention, to lean into our wounds and address them head-on so that healing can flow into these areas. When we discover this, the pain revealed by the trail becomes our friend, and we realize that the path we are on is really the path to wholeness. Mm. Can you give me an example, if it's not too personal, of that pain that you say is revealed to you on these trails and how the trails can be healing? Well, you know... (laughs) At times, uh, you know, you may have had an argument with someone and, uh, you know, our tendency is just to say, oh, it's their fault. Oh, they should have done this. And when I'm out there in the quiet, it just begins to rumble around and you begin to realize your own motivations and you realize, oh, actually, I was acting out of fear. It was fear and trying to protect myself. Um, And you begin to say, okay, I need to lower my defenses. I need to give this person grace, and you begin to find these opportunities to reconnect with people and uh, or situations. It just, we don't have time to really go deep in these things in our busy world. And so being away from it all, being in the beauty of nature, gives us that opportunity to reflect in a way that we just can't do in the middle of a, of a city or in the middle of our busy, busy lives. And, and to work things out in your mind so that you can then go back and find resolution. Exactly. Let's go on to the thing you probably get asked the most. Uh, what tips do you have for getting the kinds of photographs most people only dream about? Yeah, people come into my gallery all the time and say, I went to that exact same spot and my picture looks nothing like yours. It must be Photoshop. And I, what I encourage people to do is realize that it's photography. It's writing with light. And so the light is the most important component. And typically I take all of my pictures within about 15 minutes of sunrise or sunset. Because as the sun is at a really low angle, it sort of bends over the earth and, and it... Uh, is much more colorful. At the start of the day, it's orange, then goes to sort of yellow, and then uh, goes back to sort of a grayish blue color. And if you can catch it during those first few moments, it's just magical. And so have good light. And the other thing is, be clear about what your subject is. Don't try and photograph everything in one picture. Just decide, this is my subject. And then you can possibly build, as you get better, you can build other elements around it to support that subject. And um, are those your favorite times of day, sunrise and sunset? <laughs> My wife laughs. She's she's going to be laughing now as she hears this because uh, I am not a morning person. Uh, in fact, I my ideal would be to go to bed at 9 and get up at 9. Uh, but the reality is, as a landscape photographer, you need to be in location, you know, at least half an hour before the sun rises, which in June, you know, is uh, you need to be there by about 5 a.m. ready to go. And oftentimes that's, you know, many miles back from the trailhead. So you could be leaving, you know, at very early hours in the day. And uh, so, no, the hardest part about being a landscape photographer is getting out of bed. We had a listener in Estes Park who wrote in suggesting that we interview you. And she said you leave the house at 9 p.m. sometimes to get the perfect shot um, at sunrise. Uh, Is that the case? 
Not often, but it does happen. It just depends how far back I need to go. Uh, Because the demand on camping is so uh, great in Rocky Mountain National Park, I can only get a few nights of camping in a year, I think seven. And so I'm out all the time. And so the only way to get to some of these places in time for sunrise might be to leave the evening before and just start hiking through the night in order to get there by 5 a.m., How do you discipline yourself to get up at the crack of dawn, sometimes in the cold, and do this? Well, yeah, that's the hard part. But I think it's knowing what I'm... I'm giving up sleep. I'm giving up the warmth of my bed. But I I keep in mind the picture of what I'm gaining and what lies ahead, at least what I'm hoping will lie ahead. And, you know, if we don't make some of those sacrifices in life, we we never will get those rewards that, that lie ahead for us. You have a few books to help people take good photos in the park, and they also reflect on your experiences working here uh, for more than 10 years. We have a link to those books at cprnews.org. And if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Eric Stensland, who photographs landscapes and wildlife at Rocky Mountain National Park. One of the many photos that wowed me um, was one where you feel like you're up in the sky almost like being in an airplane. There's this layer of clouds with mountains peeking up. And I understand clouds are essential for you in your photography. They are. A lot of people think, oh, it's a blue sky day. It's perfect. Um, But those are the days I go back to bed. Clouds really convey emotion in an image. Without them, uh, the image feels empty. And so I'm looking for those times when the eastern horizon is clear in the morning but uh, there are clouds over the mountains because those clouds will reflect the light back down onto the mountains and create this sense of wonder. And the images you're referring to are when we have an inversion where the clouds are pushed down low and they ride in the lower valleys and the mountains peak up above them. So I'm always, I spend a lot of my time just watching weather forecasts and particularly cloud forecasts, trying to guess where the clouds will be Uh, so I can be there and be ready uh, to photograph them in in the best possible way. Is there one shot you wanted to get but haven't been able to capture yet? Oh, I've got lots of them. (laughs) Yeah, there's some I've spent years and years after. If I could paint, it would be so much easier because I have these (laughs) pictures in my head that I, I envision. But, you know, the light needs to be just right. The foliage needs to be just right. The clouds have to be in the proper place. But yeah, I've got some pictures of uh, a couple of remote lakes with wildflowers growing around them and snowy peaks just behind them with puffy clouds. And, you know, they're about 11, 12 miles back from the trailhead. So you can't just go there each morning until the conditions are right. You really have to guess and and hope. And uh, too often the weather changes. You you hike out at 1, 2 in the morning to get to these places, and then a cloud bank moves in and blocks it, and you go, okay, i got to come back another day. I understand you don't want to share your favorite spots off-trail, but what about on-trail? Are there places you'd recommend to people headed to the park? Oh, there's so many wonderful places. Yeah, and I'm, I have an agreement with uh, folks at the Park Service not to... Uh, share where locations are that are off trail in order to preserve them because we now have 4.5 million people visiting the park and uh, some of these delicate precious areas could easily be hurt. Uh, But yeah, within the park, some of my favorite on-trail locations are places like uh, Lake Nanita, Lake Nakoni. Very few people go there. On the east side, you know, just getting up to places like Sky Pond or even Lake Bierstadt are 
absolutely incredible, especially at sunrise when uh, that morning light hits the peaks and they glow and reflect on those lakes. It's, it's just awe-inspiring. That is photographer Eric Stensland speaking with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. You can pre-order his book, Whispers in the Wilderness, which comes out December 1st. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Our podcast, The Taxman, was edited by Robert Smith. Rumteen Arablui created the music. Fact-checking by Jennifer Karchmer. There's much more online, including an annotated copy of Tabor, with comments from supporters that didn't make it into the podcast. All that's at CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us at CPR News.